So, um, for those of you, we're going to, we're going to get started pretty quick here just because we have a lot to cover. Like I said, last week we had a lot to cover this week, we have even more to cover. Um, so we're going to be in John chapter four. And for those of you who might be new coming in, um, the gist of what we're going to do, I'm going to start off with prayer and then I'm going to read all of John chapter four. And then I've made notes on the topic. So if you see me looking right here, that's because my computer screen is right there. And so I'm going to be taking some notes from different commentaries and stuff. And we're going to go through sort of the historical context behind um, this chapter. And, and then at the very end, we'll have a chance to do some questions and stuff. But why don't we get started? Um, I'm going to open up in some prayer and then we'll read the chapter. All right. So God, we just thank you so much for bringing us here together today as brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to come to your word and to learn. God, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would be present with each and every one of us, um, that you would open up our eyes and our ears, both physically and spiritually, so that we can understand the things that you want to speak to us today. We thank you so much for the blessing that your word is in our lives and the, the food that it gives to our spirits. So God, we just ask that you would go before us in everything that we do here and that every word I speak would be um, just in line with your will, God, that I wouldn't say anything that um, is not in line with your will for tonight. So we just thank you for these things and we ask that you bless this evening in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, um, so John chapter four, I'm just going to dive right in and read. I am reading from the New American Standard Bible or NASB version um, and so you guys can follow along in your Bibles if you have them I would encourage you to open your Bibles up as well all right so John chapter 4 verse 1 first of all some background we just came from chapter 3 where Jesus was in Jerusalem remember for the feast of Passover and he saw Nicodemus there and then from from talking with Nicodemus he leaves Jerusalem goes into Judea and he's with John the Baptist baptizing in the desert um, anyway, so that's where we're kind of picking up. So Jesus has been baptizing. He's with his disciples. They're baptizing in Jesus' name. Jesus wasn't doing the baptisms. And then we get to John chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. 
The woman said to him, Sir, uh, or hold on a second. <laughs> I skipped a verse. There we go. Verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are correct. Uh, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For in salvation, uh, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When, the one, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why do you speak to, with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see, a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are four, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he went forth from there to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was an, a royal official whose son was sick in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went down to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Okay. 
there's a lot going on. There's two kind of main things that we're seeing here. First, we're seeing Jesus' ministry in Samaria to the Samaritan woman, and then again to her whole town. Um, and then in the, uh, the second ending clip there, we have the nobleman's son healing. So first of all, I want to point out, we're picking up where we left off, right? Um, the Pharisees that Jesus had been, they would have been hearing from Jesus during the, um, oh goodness, the feast, the feast of, not Pentecost, I just read it, Passover. During the feast of Passover, the Pharisees were seeing that he was doing all of these crazy miracles. He was driving people out of the temple, right? And they were not super thrilled. And furthermore, when Jesus went into the area that John the Baptist was at, and he was baptizing people through his disciples, um, the Pharisees were not happy. They were getting pretty riled up, and they had it in their hearts to do wrong to Jesus. Now, Jesus knew their hearts, right? And so it says here, the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples, and Jesus knew their hearts were wicked, and they were set against him. So he decided, I'm going to go um, we're going to take, we're going to depart from here. The interesting thing though, is that Jesus chose to go from Judah into Galilee through the Samaria route. So there was two routes that were taken. And, um, traditionally the Pharisees did not go through Samaria for them. I'm going to explain the whole like problem between the Jews and the Samaritans in a minute. Um, but for them to travel through Samaria was to pollute themselves because the land, they considered it all cursed. The people were cursed. Nobody had anything to do with the Samaritans if you were in the sect of the Pharisees. So they actually would go all the way around. So I think maybe Jesus in a way, like I don't, this isn't in the text, but I like to think sometimes to myself, maybe he knew that by going through Samaria, the Pharisees weren't going to follow him. So he was kind of losing their trail. Um, Anyhow, so traditionally, the Galileans went up through Samaria, from Galilee through Samaria to Judea to go to the feast in Jerusalem when it was the appointed time for those feasts. Um, and okay, so what is up with Samaria? Everybody's probably heard, if you've been in church culture for a while, you've heard about how the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. And I found some great information, so I'm going to kind of explain that. It really dates back to when um, Israel separated from Judah when the kingdom split. So originally, it was one whole kingdom under the um, under the rule of David's line, right? But there was an issue. So after King Solomon, King Solomon, he, he was a righteous ruler, but he taxed the people very heavily. And so when his son Rehoboam began to rule over the kingdom, he also likewise started really taxing the people. And so we have 10 tribes in the north that comprised modern, like where Israel would have been. And then we have the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, to the south that ended up making up the kingdom of Judah, right? So, so what happened was Rehoboam was living in, Ju like technically in the, northern, in the southern kingdom, Judah, ruling out of Jerusalem. And um, because of the taxation, the 10 provinces or the 10 tribes to the north rebelled against him. And they're like, we don't want you as king anymore. We're done with your heavy taxes and your fine silks and living in the palace while the rest of us suffer and you're selling us into slavery. This is miserable. We don't want you to be our king. We're going to choose a different king. So they chose a different king um, and they seated. They, they, the 10 northern tribes kept the name Israel and they forced the two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, to take a different name for their country. So they chose the name Judah after the tribe of Judah. And then the Israelites in the north 
decided that they were going to pick a guy by the name of Omri to be king. Now, for those of you, this is kind of cool, for those of you who know Jewish history, Omri was the father of King Ahab, and King Ahab became, like, the most wicked Israeli ruler of, like, all time. He married Jezebel. So if you haven't read about Ahab and Jezebel, go back into the Old Testament, look up their stories, like, Google out, I can't remember the exact reference, I think it's in First Kings, maybe. But Google their stories and read about the absolute atrocities that both Ahab and Jezebel committed. So Omri, the first king of the northern seceded or ceded area of Israel, um, was the father of Ahab. Okay, so he was the sixth king of Israel. Um, and what he did was that after the two split, he bought the hill of Samaria from another ruler at the time. Okay, so he didn't conquer it, he bought the hill. And at that place, he built the capital city of Israel, which became Samaria at the time. It was, so I'm just going to read here, it said it was a strong defensive um, city and it controlled the main valley by which the main road ran into Jerusalem from the north um, and also into Galilee. Now in 722 BC, before Christ, that city of Samaria fell to the Assyrians. And when it fell to the Assyrians, it actually became the headquarters of the Assyrian Empire in that region. Um, so from there, Samaria, or sorry, Assyria took control over all of northern Israel, right? Not over Judah at the time, but over Israel. And m most of the people were taken into captivity, okay? So those invaders, the Assyrian invaders, then brought in their own Gentile colonists, to start working the land and growing produce and stuff. And these foreigners brought with them their pagan idols and their rituals and their lifestyle and their culture, right? Um, and the remaining Jews who were left there to till the land and kind of essentially work as slaves to the Assyrians, they began to pick up the culture of these Gentile colonists and they started worshiping their gods, their false gods. As a result, you know, when you got two groups of people living close together, you start having friendships. And as a result, we started getting some intermarriage going on between the two cultures and races, right? So while many of the inhabitants of the city and surrounding area of Samaria were led off into captivity, some of the farmers were left behind. They intermarried with these new settlers and they were considered an abomination to the Jews because the Jews were not supposed to marry into those secular cultures and take on those cultures. So when Cyrus, King Cyrus, allowed the Jews to go back from Babylon down into Israel and resettle the land, um, the Samaritans were all excited. They were ready to welcome them back. They'd been living in the land. They're like, yay, the Jewish, our Jewish brothers and sisters are coming home. Um, but the exiles from Babylon that were coming in absolutely hated the Samaritans. They would have nothing to do with them. They despised them because they were looking at the fact that these guys had intermarried. They'd broken so many different commandments. They'd started their own like weird religions and stuff. And so the Samaritans actually wanted to join in the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and their assistance by the Jews was rejected. And that's in Ezra chapter four that you can read about it. Now, um, in addition to this, we also know that during the Maccabean Wars, the, um, the Samaritans allied themselves against their own countrymen, against the Jews, which was like bad. Um, the Jews then, 
as a, in retaliation to the Samaritans allying themselves with enemies of the Jews, the, the Israelite Jews came in and destroyed the Samaritan temple that they had built to worship God. Interesting. Um, and then around the time of Jesus' birth, the Samaritans furthermore retaliated against the Israelites and they profaned the temple. So they went in on a Passover feast and they took human bones and scattered them into the temple, which desecrated the temple. And the Jews were absolutely mortified. So of course, you think about today with like the crazy stuff happening in um, the United States. I'm from Canada, but I'm watching what's, what's going on there. And you guys, you've got, you know, rioters who are burning churches. And when people burn churches and burn Bibles and curse with the name of Jesus, like it just makes your heart break inside, right? And it makes you angry. And a lot of people have gotten really angry towards the folks that now, of course, we in Christ are, are not called to live lives in anger, but it, it makes you upset, right? Now think about the Jews who didn't really have that same Christ-like compassion that us as Christians have towards the Samaritans who just finished like bringing in human bones into their temple. Of course, they're going to be absolutely livid towards them. So, so this is the reason why the Samaritans and the Jews just didn't hang out together. They didn't talk to each other. They wanted nothing to do with each other. Um, it was just, it was a bad situation. So um, anyway, so Jesus is in this region. He goes through, he stops at a well that was well regarded by the Samaritans at the time. And he's exhausted. He's probably, it says it was around the sixth hour of the day. And they count the hour from about 6 a.m. in the morning, which means it was probably sometime around noon. So you think noon during the, looked like probably a hot season. He was hot. He was tired. He was sweaty. He was hungry. He didn't, they didn't have enough food, right? And so he sits down by the well and his disciples are like, look, we're going to go into the city. We're going to go and get you some food. You just wait here and rest. Jesus had finished preaching to all these people and performing miracles. He was exhausted. He's a, he has a human body, right? Um... So he's sitting there resting and this woman comes out. Now it was super weird for a woman to come out at that particular time. Usually people got their water early in the morning or late at night when it was cool out. So she was clearly ex like kind of cast out and outcast from her own community because she wasn't coming at the time that the normal women came. And Jesus would have known that this is strange. So he asks her to give him a drink and she immediately says, how is it that you, she, no reference, no, you know, not like rabbi, Nicodemus called Jesus rabbi. He knew he was a teacher just from the way that he carried himself and the things that he said. This, this lady, she's like you, <laughs> um, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? So first of all, kind of enters my, my head. Why, how did she know he was a Jew? Was it the way that he dressed? It's actually probably the way that he spoke. And I, I thought this was super interesting. So I looked it up and Samaritans were accustomed. There's this really interesting um, sort of like a speech difference between the Jews and the Samaritans that had to do with the region that they lived in and the language differences. So she typically, Samaritans turned any SH sound, like a sh sound into a S. And you can actually read about this in Judges chapter 12 verses 5 and 6 judges 12 verses 5 and 6 it's a really interesting um kind of historical situation that happened where uh people were identified simply based on their ability to pronounce sh or s right and so anyway so jesus in aramaic the language or the word that he would have used for to say give me a drink is teni 
Leshekov. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm probably not. But Teni Leshekov means give me a drink. Except in Samaria, the people in Samaria from her village would have pronounced it Teni Leshekov instead of sh. So immediately, the, the phrase that he chose to say to her identified him as a Jew, which is, I think, kind of interesting. It's sort of like a linguistic thing. I'm very intrigued by that sort of stuff. Anyway, so um, so she, she immediately identifies him as a Jew, and Jesus retorts back to her. He doesn't say anything. He specifically goes on to say, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus is speaking spiritually, right? He is speaking about the living water that he can provide that flows out from us from the inside and transforms our life. Um, and this reminds me, remember guys, back to chapter two, when we were talking about the purification um, vessels, right? That were eventually carried the wine that was used, um, that Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding. So remember, we talked a little bit about living water and how living water has to come from a stream that's flowing and it can be considered, it's used for purification if it's kept inside of a stone vessel, right? So in this particular case, Jesus is claiming he has access to living water that is able to purify you from the inside out. Isn't that cool? I just find that so fascinating. Um, so he's kind of using like a parable. It's not really a parable here, but he's, he's explaining a spiritual truth using a physical example, right? Um, and this, I, I threw this verse in because I love this verse, just as an example of the living water that Jesus gives us. It's also shadowed in Revelation chapter 12, verses one and two. And that reads, I'm not gonna turn, I have it copied down here. Um, it says in Revelation chapter 12, verses one and two, then he showed me, this is John speaking about an angel showing him in his vision. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. Isn't that beautiful? Like the living water of God is flowing out. The water of life is flowing out from under the throne of God, right? Like it's coming from being saturated in the very presence of God. And that is the living water that is flowing out of you and I. When we accept Jesus as our savior, when we allow his Holy Spirit to work through us. And I just like, it's so beautiful. Um, so, so after Jesus says, I could have given, you know, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me for living water. And she changes her tone a bit. So previously, when she talked to Jesus, she said, how is it that you, no term of, term of reverence, in, in the next thing that she says, she goes, sir. Um, it's also a term for master. Like in some translations, it'll be master or Lord. She now uses a word that shows, oh, you're a teacher of some sort, somebody who deserves a little bit more respect than I was showing you initially. Um, and so she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Now she's thinking physical terms, right? Um, her terminology kind of contrasts quite stark, starkly uh, with the conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus had previously. Jesus and Nicodemus were going on into all these spiritual terms and stuff. And, and Jesus was talking about the difference between understanding physical things versus heavenly things and, and so forth. This woman is not an educated leader of, you know, the Pharisee group. 
she is a simple Samaritan woman who is completely outcast from her own village and society. She probably had very little training um, and she clearly wasn't going to the synagogues because Samaritans were completely despised in the synagogues, right? So um, she emphatically states that surely Jesus is not greater than Joseph, right? Or uh, Jacob, sorry. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Uh, who gave us this well and drank of it himself? She makes a statement about the genealogy of the Samaritans, right? Because they believe they came, they were descendants from Jacob. And so therefore, true people of the land. Um, and in fact, this statement of the descent of the Samaritans wasn't even something that was proven at the time. Um, just because of all of the intermarriage that had gone on and sort of the pollution of their bloodline, so to speak. So what she's saying is essentially sort of hearsay that was going around that the Samaritans just said, like, oh, Jacob's well, he's our father. Like, is he actually your father? Um, and while being somewhat more respectful in her terminology to Jesus, she's still pretty sharp and aggressive, right? She's still probably expecting him to turn on her like most Jews typically would. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus does not answer her question about, you know, are you greater than our father Jacob? Um, but he, he asserts the spiritual truth that he was previously stating, right, about talking about the living water. Everyone who drinks, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, that physical water of the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So beautiful. Yet the woman is still thinking in physical terms, right? She goes, sir, give me some of this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She's thinking he's actually talking about, I can cure your problem of, of thirst. Like, I'll just give you water that constantly flows up. You're never going to feel thirsty again. And um, so again, kind of highlighting the fact that she's not a scholar at all. And yet Jesus in his reply to her, remember, he ignored her previous question. Now in her reply, or his reply to her, um, he completely discards everything that was said. And it seems like he's going down a totally different trail. Um, it seems like, like, I'm, I, some people are kind of confused But what he says next. Because he says, go call your husband to come here. Like, why would Jesus need her husband to come? Is it because he needs permission from the husband to give this living water to the woman, but it's actually something deeper than that. Again, remember, Jesus is focusing on the spiritual truths that can transform our lives. So the natural interpretation is that in response to her request, Jesus now gives her, gives her now the, the first draught of living water by causing her to face her own guilt in the, in the sin that she was currently living in by living with a man that she was not married to. Um, he cannot give the living water for that thirst until that thirst is actually awakened within us, right? So for somebody who is not interested in Jesus, no matter how hard you preach, no matter how many things you tell them, until that hunger becomes their own hunger for truth and for life, you can, you can try and give them living water, but they'll never accept it. And so that's what Jesus was doing here. He was trying to open her understanding to her desire and her need and her requirement for something that would sanctify and purify her from the inside out. Okay, so he's pointing out 
her sin, but he was doing it in a super kind way, right? Like he wasn't like condemning her or anything. He was showing her, he was kind of like leading her into recognizing her own sin. So, um, so the sure method of awakening the thirst is to make her acknowledge herself as a sinful woman. Um, and then in Barnes notes, a commentary that I was reading, it says his instructions, she did not understand. He therefore proceeded to show her that he was acquainted with her life and with her sins prophetically, right? He did not actually know her as a person. She's never met the guy before. His object here was to lead her to consider her own state and sinfulness, a delicate yet a pungent way of making her see that she was a sinner. He did it so well, like Jesus is amazing. Um, by showing her also that he knew her life, though a stranger to her, he convinced her that he was qualified to teach her the way to heaven and thus prepared her to his admission that he is the Messiah. So she actually tries to avoid the conversation by saying, instead of like coming out and explaining her whole history of, because clearly Jesus is, is insinuating something about her husband, right? Um, she simply states, I don't have a husband end of topic, don't want to discuss it any further, yet Jesus knows the hearts of men and he revealed what was actually going on to her. The fact that not only does she not have a husband currently, the man that she's living with is not her husband and she's been married five times previously. Whether those five marriages were legal marriages, um, you know, the husband passed away and so she remarried, we don't know. Um, but what we do know is that her current situation of living with a man that she was not married to was sinful according to the law. And she would have known that. After this exchange, then the woman goes from calling him you, and then the next, st the next stage was calling him master, lord, sir. Now she's calling him prophet. In this next thing she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, because he just told her what her life was essentially, right? Um, and the statement of prophet is very interesting because Samaritans did not believe in the prophets of the Old Testament, and they didn't believe in anything other than the Pentateuch, the Torah, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, all right? They discarded everything else because, partially because um, the information that comes after Deuteronomy going into Joshua and Judges was written by the guys that were in the, in the Southern Kingdom that like hated the Samaritans eventually when the two kingdoms split. And so the Samaritans were like, we don't want any of that information. It's probably not written by God. So we're just going to stick with the first five books. Okay. So now that being said, um, so they discredit a lot of these prophets, all of their information about the Messiah did not come then from those prophets. And those prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they prophesied about a king coming, right? Like they, they prophesied about a man who would prophesy about somebody who would be, um, become sin for mankind. But these guys, the Samaritans didn't believe that and they didn't have that in their literature. So they were looking at the books of Moses and the books of Moses specifically said that the Messiah was going to come as a prophet. Okay. So this is kind of cool. So she recognizes now she's like, oh, he's a prophet. Is he maybe the Messiah? And, um, so, and then let's say here, so she goes, uh, instead of, instead of like recognizing further that perhaps he's the Messiah, she goes, okay, so you're a prophet. That's great. You can tell me things about myself that I, I've never told anybody. I've never told you. Um, and then she brings up the, the situation of worship. 
Now, the situation of worship, they, she says here, our fathers, referring to the Samaritan, our fathers as Samaritans, worshipped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. Um, and you people <laughs> say that in Jerusalem, that's the place where men ought to worship. So she's bringing up this big social issue of the time. She's saying, as Samaritans, we believe that this is our holy ground. And yet your guys are saying that we have to worship in Jerusalem. So now you've revealed my sin to me and you're saying that you can change my life, but I have to go and confess my sin somewhere. So um, where do I do that? Do I do it here on our holy mountain or do I do it in your temple in Jerusalem? What's the deal? So Gerizim um, is this mountain at the foot of which was the well that Jesus was located at when he was talking to this lady. Okay. And according to Samaritan tradition, uh, Abraham sacrificed or brought Isaac, his son Isaac, to sacrifice him on Mount Gerizim. Even though he technically sacrificed, he brought Isaac to sacrifice on Mount Ebal, I believe. Um, so there was a translation issue between the Samaritans and the Jews, which is also kind of interesting. Um, so furthermore, uh, Jacob made an altar in that region. So it was considered a holy place to the Samaritans, right? Um, and the name of this mountain, um, Gerizim, is where Sanballat from, if any of you guys have read the book of Nehemiah and how they go back from the Babylonian Empire, Nehemiah gets permission to go and build the wall around Jerusalem. So Sanballat was a Samaritan there, um, and he actually built a temple on Mount Gerizim uh, to honor God. And he actually made uh, his son-in-law, who was related to the Jews... Um, his son-in-law's name was Manasseh. He made him high priest at this temple on Mount Gerizim. So um, let's just see here. I've got a couple notes. I just want to, uh, I just reiterated a couple things. One second here. Um, okay, so certain it is, this is from Matthew Poole's commentary, just some notes on Mount Gerizim and what's going on here. So certain it is that from that mountain, Moses pronounced blessings. All right. But it is very probable that the woman had respect to none of these, Samaritan women. However, common usage of the Samaritans to worship in a temple built upon this mountain in opposition to that at Jerusalem. So the story here probably relates to this. Okay. So Sanballat was governor of Samaria. All right. And he was put over Samaria by King Darius. And of this guy, we read of him in Nehemiah, chapter 13, verse 28. Nehemiah actually, so Sanballat came to the walls of Jerusalem, um, and he was causing so many problems for Nehemiah. Uh, and finally, Nehemiah ran him off with a sword. <laughs> He's like, you go get out of here, right? So Sanballat chased, he was chased off. And this, again, it just fed into that antagonistic relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. Um, so again, Manasseh was the high priest over that temple. Um, so for about 220 years, there was two temples. Okay, so there was the one at Gerizim, Mount Gerizim, and then there was the one in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans believed their temple was the appropriate one. They had their high priest from the line of the Levites. Manasseh was from a line of Levites. And then in, in Jerusalem, they also had the other temple, right? So the Samaritans looked at that ground as being holy. And that's why um, this lady was bringing it up to Jesus. So then Jesus goes about and, and starts talking to her and saying, okay, first of all, there's going to come a time when it doesn't matter where you worship because God is spirit. And we're going to get to that in a second. But he says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So, ouch, he's telling her, you have no idea what you're worshiping. And actually, the reason why he's saying this, though, it's not because he's being mean. He's being truthful. Um, he speaks about the lack of knowledge from the Samaritans because they refuse to acknowledge the prophets and the the um, the events, like the historical events that happened outside of the five books of Moses. So in addition to this, the prophets, the customs of sacrificing for the purification of sins, they didn't, they didn't recognize any of that and they didn't practice any of it. So technically when they were worshiping God, they didn't fully understand how to worship God because they weren't doing it according to the law that God prescribed. So again, in addition to this, we also have to remember that until Jesus died on the cross for the sins of humanity, sins were still under the Old Testament sacrificial system. You still had to go up to the temple and bring your goats and your your doves and, and whatnot and the grains and your grain offerings and, and flower offerings and so forth. So these people were still under that jurisdiction, that law. Um, and so Jesus was explaining to her, like, you've got a whole bunch of sins here that have not been purified or covered, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you some good news. Um, okay. So one second here, let me scroll. Right. And then in addition to this, um, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 32 and 33. I just wanted to read this quick excerpt. It's about the Samaritans, and this is in the Old Testament. Again, talking about how they don't understand what they're worshiping. So it says about these Samaritans, they also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves high priests, or sorry, priests of the high places. High places were false god temples, okay? Who acted for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord, and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations among whom they had been carried away into exile. So these people, they said, we, we serve God and we rever God, we revere God and we love him. But at the same time, out of those same mouths that were honoring God with praise and thanksgiving and, and supposedly some sacrificial system as well, they were also honoring these false gods. And I mean, the Israelites themselves, in addition to the Samaritans, the Israelites too were caught up in this whole mess of a situation where they were honoring false gods and then honoring God with their same lips. And God's like, it's all detestable to me. You guys don't understand. Um, so Jesus was kind of bringing this up. But the beautiful thing from this whole statement, though, is that out of this, verse 24, it says, God, Jesus says this, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This was a revelation that was so profound. Up until Jesus said this, in the Old Testament, it was understood that God had was spirit, right? He had a Holy Spirit that he would send down upon people. But it was never explicitly stated that God himself is spirit, right? It was implied through the text. And so Jesus saying this, this was like pretty profound. Um, he has to be worshipped in spirit and truth. And this attests again to the Ten Commandments where we read about in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, where it says, like, you cannot create a carved image um, because these things are detestable to me. So we're not supposed to create any graven images and worship those because God is not, you can't encompass him in an image. By doing that, you're, you're creating a false idea of what God is and what he looks like in his characteristics. He is not bound by an by a body. He is spirit. And it's so much bigger than anything that anybody could ever create on earth. So he, he, he doesn't want any of that from us. Um, 
In addition to this, emphasizing numerous times in the Old Testament through the prophets, God told his people that he despised their sacrifices and their songs and their festivals because their hearts weren't in it. So to worship him in spirit, in truth, it's not just about the actions that we perform on a Sunday when we're singing to him and, and putting in our offering and stuff. It's about the posture of our hearts. God would rather us do nothing, not even sing a word. He would rather us not give any money at all if our hearts truly aren't in it. It's all about the posture of your heart towards God. If, you're, if your heart towards him is to honor him and to love and obey him, then he will accept the sacrifice that you give him. And it's the same thing. When he calls you to do things in your life and he calls you to give up certain things, you have to do it out of a place of desire to serve him. And as opposed to begrudgingly, right? He doesn't want you to do anything begrudgingly. He's not some monster God who comes in and just kind of like takes over your life and makes it miserable. He wants you to do it because you recognize that the call of that he has on your life is to purify you, to make you holy so that you can be in his presence, um, to cause you to become more like Christ, right? That's what we're called to be holy after God is holy. So we have to come to him in spirit, not in flesh. Um, and this was a pretty crazy, pretty crazy statement. Okay, so let's see here. Um, so she, this Samaritan woman, is the first person that Jesus actually revealed himself to be Messiah to. There were others who recognized Jesus as Messiah, but verbally for him to affirm that he is indeed the Messiah this, she was the first one that he revealed himself to. And I find that so crazy because not only is she a Samaritan, she's a woman. And this is like the lowest of the low on the possible caste system that you could get <laughs> back in that time. Um, now the disciples, when they come to Jesus, they're not surprised that he's talking to a Samaritan. Okay. They're not surprised about that. What they're surprised about is the fact that he's talking to a woman. And the reason why is because of this. So first of all, women were classified as second class citizens. They were below, below men. They weren't considered like men at all. Um, it was a very sexist society. And in addition to this, um, there's a Jewish text that the rabbis adhered to at the time, all the teachers of the law. And the text reads this. It says, I'm quoting it directly, do not talk much with women. This was said about one's wife. How much more so about the wife of one's neighbors? Therefore, the sages have said, he who talks too much with women brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the Torah and will in the end inherit Gehenna. And Gehenna is not just hell, it's eternal damnation in the lake of fire, essentially. All right, so it's like the worst eternal death. Um, so for a rabbi to be seen spending time talking with a female uh, was considered like taboo. It was not done. Like maybe a regular guy would be able to sit around and talk with a female that he didn't know. Um, but for a rabbi, it was just, you don't do that. You're a teacher of the law. You're living holy and pure before God. You just don't talk to women. Um, and Jesus just kind of blows all of that out of the water. And he's sitting there and he's having this in-depth discussion about eternal life with a woman who is a Samaritan, who's hated by the Jews, who is not only hated by the Jews, but she's hated by her own city because she lives such a, a kind of like a promiscuous life, right? So, um, so she goes, she goes out from there and into her city and she testifies to the people in her city and says, he told me all the things I have done. 
She doesn't try to convince them that he's the Christ, but she's pretty much telling them he's a prophet. What he did for me, nobody could do. Um, so you guys should go and, and talk with him <laughs> because what he's doing is crazy. Uh, and again, because the Samaritans believed that the Messiah was supposed to be a prophet, according to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, um, she appeals to them on the basis of what he told her about her past, about his prophetic utterance. So of course they had to go and check it out because that would immediately pique their curiosity. Now, um, while she's down in the, in the city doing this, uh, Jesus is there, his disciples have come to him, and he says to them, okay, yeah, so they're, they're like, okay, we brought you food, uh, we got you some stuff here, eat the food. And Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know of. Um, and they're like, what? Nobody brought you food though. You're sitting here, there's no crumbs. Like, where did you get this food from? And he goes again into a spiritual explanation. My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. And, and then he goes into a harvest time explanation um, in, in talking about sowing and harvesting. And what he was really referencing here is all of the sowing that had been done up to date by the prophets, by, you know, the law of Moses, talking about the Messiah coming, John the Baptist ministry, all of these people who were paving the way for him to come. He's saying, these guys sowed. Um, and then in this case, the saying is true. Verse 37, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, Old Testament guys, right? Others have labored, John the Baptist, and you have entered into their labor to reap the benefits, to bring in the people, because now it's time for salvation to start being revealed to people, um, which is like super cool. Okay, so he he's again talking about... Uh, sort of that harvest time example. The eagerness of the Samaritans to believe in Jesus, when they came, they came out from the city, they listened to the woman because they were curious about this prophet. They came out and started talking to Jesus and they were blown away by what he had to say. Um, and so they were super eager to believe in him. It kind of foreshadows from what I've seen, it sort of foreshadows Jesus as the Messiah offering salvation to the Gentiles. Like, to date, yes, there were people who were became disciples of Jesus. They were baptized into his ministry, right? Yet the Samaritans, the whole city came out to see him and wanted to listen and learn more. And I just find that so beautiful that this, these cursed people who were so despised by the Jews, yet Jesus spent two extra days sitting with them and teaching them and talking with them and probably healing them as well um, from their ailments and stuff. It's just, it's beautiful. And it also shows the power of your personal testimony about the fact that this woman went down to the village and told these people what Jesus showed her. She didn't go and try and explain like, oh, I think he's the Messiah because, you know, X, Y, Z prophecies. She didn't do any of that. She simply said, he told me about my life. Wow. Right? Like, it, it's so important for us to have just 
the courage to share our own personal testimonies with people as opposed to, you know, picking up the word of God and just like smacking them over the head that, you know, for some people it might work. It might be required, (laughs) but for the most part, people can be so touched by your personal testimony of what Jesus has done for you. And this is an example, like the entire town came out and many of them, many of the people in the town believed in Jesus because this one woman had the courage to go out and say, guess what Jesus did for me? So beautiful. It's, uh, it's so encouraging. So, um, yeah, so let that be a reminder about the, the power of your own personal testimony. So from here, Jesus, he, he spends the time with them and then he gets up and he says, okay, we have to head out. So after two days, he heads out, he goes down into Galilee. Now, typically people, you know, I guess the train of thought here that the disciples had is that we're going to go back to Nazareth and and stop off there, perhaps because it was like the next closest stop. I'm not 100% sure on that, um, but it would help explain the reason why Jesus says certain things or John, or John writes certain things about Jesus in verse 44. It says, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his home country. Uh, so when he went, he came to Galilee the Galileans received him. So he didn't go to Nazareth. The reason why? Because the people in Nazareth would have grown up with Jesus. They would have seen him as a kid. And they're looking at this ministry and they're like, I know that guy. He's a prophet. Are you kidding me? I saw him when he was like three years old, picking boogers out of his nose. Right? So they, they had no respect for Jesus' ministry. It was really unfortunate. They saw him as just a regular old kid. And they, they, probably were quite jealous of the following that Jesus was getting. They're thinking to themselves, this is a, a hick, right? Son of Joseph, the carpenter. Like, how He's amounting to something? Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of sad, though. Um, yet the regions surrounding that area welcomed him warmly. And Jesus was able to teach there and to share the gospel, right? About forgiveness, about repentance from sin, um, turning from your old ways. So he goes into the town of Cana in Galilee. Uh, and Cana, again, he probably had relatives there. This is the place where he did the miracle with the turning water into wine back in chapter two. And so he comes into Cana and here he comes into contact with this nobleman. So this guy is a royal official. He probably would have been directly involved with Herod Antipas's court. Um, so King Herod, not the King Herod that tried to kill Jesus, different King Herod. Um, and so this nobleman lived in Capernaum and he had heard that Jesus was coming out of Samaria into Galilee, into Cana. And he gets word and he's like, my son's really sick. I'm going to go talk to Jesus. So he goes, he gets up, he goes, he goes to see Jesus. Um, and he entreats Jesus. However, Jesus did not go with the man. Um, rather he tells him Instead of saying, you know, okay, I'm going to come with you. I'm going to lay hands on this guy. He just simply says, here, go, your son lives. No commanding, no demanding healing or anything like that. Just simply go, your son lives. And in those three words, your son lives, his son lived. Um, And whatever was ailing him that made him end up on death's door was just gone. It's just the power of Jesus' words. Um, So... He does say to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now, I, I kind of like looked into this. I couldn't necessarily find anything um, explaining why he said that. If it was the fact that the guy was imploring him, you need to come and lay hands and do a miracle. Uh, or if it was said kind of to a broader audience, um, 
saying that, you know, all of you guys looking on at my interaction with this fellow here, all you want to see is a miracle. All you want to see is me do some crazy stuff. But, you know, this is, you, you aren't believing. You have to see in order to believe. And he's like, if you would just believe, it would happen. Um, and that's what actually happens, though, with this guy. He said, Jesus says, go, your son lives. And the man in his heart believed that his son would live because Jesus said it. And cool enough, he goes back to Capernaum. And as he's on his way to Capernaum, believing that what Jesus said was true, he meets his servant who's coming forward from Capernaum to Cana to try and find him. And he's like, guess what? Your son's alive. And of course, the nobleman is just like, when did he, when did he make a change for the better? When did his fever leave him? And it was the exact same hour that Jesus had been talking to the nobleman saying, your son will live. Go, your son lives. Um, and that is a, another miracle, again, that Jesus performed. So that brings us to the end of chapter four. A lot of content, um, a lot of really good stuff there. And just really highlighting, man, I the story of the Samaritan woman is one of my favorites because it just highlights Jesus' compassion for people that nobody cares for typically in society. Jesus' compassion for the outcasts. It makes me think a little bit of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, it used to be one of my favorite movies as a kid and how we have Quasimodo who's crippled and deformed and yet this beautiful Esmeralda, this gypsy woman comes and she befriends him and she cares for him. And it's, you know, she sings this song about God help the outcasts, the people that nobody else wants to help. And God does. He does. He came for the person that is, um, that is kind of shunned by society. Uh, and so it's like, you know what, if he came for the lowest of the low, how much more is salvation available to you? right? Like salvation is available to anybody and everybody who will just believe on the name of Jesus and accept him as their savior. And I find that so beautiful. Um, so that is all I have for John chapter four. Uh, I know that we are kind of running on time here. So what I'm going to do guys is I'm going to close this live stream, save it and upload that as uh, for people who want to go through the study on their own time. Um, and then I'm going to come back on in like two minutes and we can do question and answers if that sounds good. Um, but this is the conclusion of John chapter four. I hope that it, it brought you insight and understanding too about the history of this time as well and about Samaria and, and Judah and Israel and stuff. Um, I, I learned a lot when I was kind of researching it and, and whatnot, uh, Okay, so I'm going to come back on in like a minute. I'm going to close this live stream. I'm going to start another one and then we'll do questions if you guys want for a little bit. All right, I'll be right back. If I can end it. <laughs>